And Roma says, no, 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 no. You don't count Saturday. You have till Monday. <laughs> and Link says, I, what, I'm not counting I'm not Saturday. Counting what are Saturday. you, I'm not, no, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai, and I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome. Yeah, how y'all doing out there? Hopefully good. Um, I'm excited to get to talk about this play today. We, I'm gonna ju- like just jump us right into it because we are returning to one of the greats of American theater today in the playwright David Mamet. That is right. Some of you will remember early in season one, we talked about David Mamet's play American Buffalo, and we have come all the way around now early in season three. We have put Mamet back on the docket, and today we're talking about Glengarry Glen Ross. Glen Gary Glen Ross. I'm very, very there's, there's so much in this play and, and so much opportunity for like awesome dialogue, so I'm excited about our dialogue about it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and just like American Buffalo was turned into a film with some really high-powered actors, Glenn, Gary, Glenn <laughs> yeah. Ross, of course, has been turned into a film with some really high-powered, amazing actors. And probably, unless you live near a really robust theater scene, the movie is going to be your best way to experience the play. The play's yeah. not a great community theater piece in a lot of community theaters. For some, yeah. it really would be. But for lots of others, it really wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm excited to talk about that, too, because I don't think this play is unproducible by any means. I think it's very accessible as a production, but some of the themes might not hit home on the you know community level. But we'll get into that in a little bit. That's right. But before we dive into that whole ocean of things to talk about, we do want to <laughs> ask everybody to please head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Again, patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's where you can become a supporter of the show. If you like what we're doing if you spend time with us weekly or however often that you can uh, please consider supporting us what we do is amazing we're excited to get to do it it's a passion project but it's not free there are hosting fees there's a myriad of fees to you know do the things that we're able to do online as well as plays that we can't find in our local library we just have to buy so uh, there's out-of-pocket expenses that we have to pay in order to be able to do this work we're asking you to support us in that so if you go on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast you can become a patron it's a monthly amount that you choose to contribute to the show the lowest tier is one dollar a month one dollar a month as i say frequently i know many of our listeners who would hand me twelve dollars that would be the yearly buy-in to support the show that gets you access to the patron only stuff that we're doing for our supporters over there so please head on over to patreon and check us out patreon.com slash no script podcast Yeah, yeah, we will see you over there. So, jumping into, we like to contextualize just a little bit, and this time is no exception, just so you know some of the history of this play. Um, We are returning to a Pulitzer Prize winner in talking about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Um, It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1984 after two very successful productions. Its premiere was in the National Theater in London in 1983, 
uh, Bill Bryson uh, pr produced that show, and then it opened in bro on Broadway in uh, March of 1984. And that production had quite a few notable names in it. There was Robert Prosky, J.T. Walsh, James Tolkien, uh, not to be confused with Tolkien, uh, <laughs> And Mike Nussbaum, Joe Man Man Mantegna, excuse me, and uh, William L. Peterson and Jack Wallace were all in that play. So a lot of famous actors of the time. If you I, I, Maybe those names don't ring a bell for you right now as I say them, but if you go up and look at their pictures, you will know these people. They went on to have very successful careers and probably had them before then as well. Um, so then it had uh, those two successful runs. It won the... Uh, uh, nominated for uh, four Tony Awards, including Best Play, Best Director, and two Best Featured Actor nominations. And uh, both Robert Prosky and Joe Mantegna won the productions for, uh, for the Tony, or the Tony for the production. Uh, then, of course, it was also turned into a film, as we have mentioned before. That film starred uh, quite a robust cast of uh, Hollywood greats. There was Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, Kevin Spacey, and Jonathan Price in that show. Notably, it, 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 it added a character in Alec Baldwin, who... Uh, Many people, if you have seen a scene on YouTube of Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, you might have seen Alec Baldwin's monologue about always be closing. And uh, interestingly, that scene was added for the film and his character was added for the film. So but but nevertheless, that is an often seen version of this this what started as a play. Yeah, that's right. So from that summary, especially the end part there, you might have some idea of who the characters are in this play. Always be closing being the mantra of Alec Baldwin's added character for the movie. It is in the script version included on, you know, like the quote page of the script. It says always be closing practical sales maxim. So sales is the subject of the play, and the seven characters in the theatrical stage version are all, well, six of the seven, actually five of the seven now that I think about it, five of the seven are salespeople. They, the, the time is 1980s, the place is a real estate office for much of the show, and these five men sell real estate, four of them are actual salespeople, one of them is like an office administrator for the salespeople, uh, and the two other characters are Link, uh, he's a man who gets sold to at one point, and Balin, who's a police officer. The subject of what goes on, the first half of the play takes place in a Chinese restaurant where we get three conversations between six of these seven characters, two characters in each scene. The subjects vary pretty widely. Two of the characters, Williamson, who's the kind of office, I don't know if he's maybe an office manager or more of an administrator. The salesmen certainly treat him like more of an administrator. His authority may lend you to think that he's more of a manager, so there's some interesting tension between that. But Williamson and Levine take the first scene. Uh, Levine has not had a good sales record, and they're in the middle of this contest, the sales contest, who can sell the most in a given amount of time, and apparently the winner gets a Cadillac, and the losing person, or maybe losing two people, get fired. So there's some tense uh, things about this, but Levine thinks that his poor... Uh, showing in this competition is largely due to the fact that he's not being given good leads. So he and Williamson negotiate back and forth by getting some good leads for Levine in this scene. Levine eventually offers to pay him off to get the leads. 
The next scene is between Moss and Aranau, and they are both salesmen as well. Uh, Moss and Aranau are very discontented about this competition. They can't believe management is doing this to them. They're angry about it. This is their livelihood, and it's being turned into a game, blah, blah, blah. Moss convinces Aranau to rob the office as payback to the management. End of scene. Uh, the third scene of this first half, Roma and Link. Roma is a salesman. Link is a normal person. And Roma is selling Link on some property. Uh, and that takes up the first half. The second half is in the sales office. The sales office has been ransacked. And the subject is the investigation and the fallout of the conversations that we saw in the first half. Yeah, yeah. So uh, all, all of this th- kind of through this play is this undercurrent of, of selling real estate. Uh, all these different people are, uh, are having different conversations throughout either about the work or in the case of Roma and Link about the actual selling of, of property. And we get to see a bunch of different scenes of, of, of what it looks like for these guys to be selling and living in the space in which they sell. Um, so, so where does the title come from? The title Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Mamet is known for some odd titles really throughout <laughs> his his group of plays. The last play of his that we talked about, American Buffalo, is one of the more clear titles that he provides. That references the coin that becomes the subject of so much consternation in that play. Glengarry Glen Ross, I believe is a combination of two different pieces of property that are talked about throughout the show. There's the Glengarry Highlands, I think, is one of the versions. And and off the top of my head, I would say that I think that that is what is being sold now. The, The good leads are the Glengarry Highland leads, I believe. And the Glen Ross is a a property, I think, that the men used to sell, especially the guys that are older. Uh, Three of the men are at least a decade older than the other four. And these guys are older salesmen. They've been around for a while. And apparently they used to sell very successfully the Glen Ross leads. So the, the title, I believe, is a combination of those two things. Do you think I'm right? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right on. It kind of brackets this company in terms of its success in the past and what it's like in the present. Met throughout this play, especially the uh, notably the ages of these characters, they're split up in in the uh, the character description uh, by basically split in half. Uh, Williamson, Roma, Williamson and Roma are, are both in their early 40s, and Levine, Moss, and Aranau are in their 50s. So there's a 10 year difference between these guys and uh, Levine, Moss and Aranau remember building, basically building this selling company um, with the bosses, Mitch and Murray. Um, they, they were there on the ground floor. They were selling, uh, I believe you're right, Glengarry uh, Highlands. And uh, they, they were doing a great job and, and making a lot of money. And now they've kind of come upon this time when they're selling, they're still selling goodish property, but it's not working for them anymore. The, 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 the uh, golden goose is one of the things that they say. The golden goose of these people that they're trying to sell to has run dry because they've oversold to them. Yeah, and and it all has to do, especially in the first half, a lot of the conversation, but it even plays into the second half, about leads. There are the premium leads, which are the people that the, the, the company believes they have the best chance of successfully selling to. How they get these leads, 
they they buy them list these lists of people from another company of some sort um and there's different tiers of how they get the leads one of the specific ways that these we know that these names come is from magazine subscriptions and the guys look down kind of on those leads as not being very uh fruitful in terms of their being able to sell people who just happen to buy a magazine that might lead them to be interested in in a particular piece of property how the other leads come though is a mystery, but we know that there is a hierarchy of leads. And the people that are at the top of the list that are selling the best get the premium leads. And that, as Levine points out in the very first scene, the logic there seems to make sense at face value. Well, you give your best leads to your best people. But the problem for the other guys is they're trying to get better, trying to improve their sales records, trying to get on the board, which you know means that they're, they've made some sales and are up there in the rankings somewhere but they're being given the worst leads. So how can they do that? How can someone who's fallen behind ever manage to cash up when they get worse and worse leads? Yeah, yeah, it makes them even more uh, desperate. They're kind of in like this this death spiral of of it's 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 going downhill for them. And despite the fact that this this group has some camaraderie, like you see throughout the play that they're checking on each other and stuff, but they're uh, whether they are forced or their own character pushes them into this state, they are all uh, pitted against each other in this competition and are are, are kind of uh, s- some of them scrabbling tooth and nail just to get any sort of teeth into a lead that will make them some money to uh, to get on the board and save their job. Right. And that tension really, really drains out, especially Levine and Moss and Aronal. Roma is winning. He's a very successful salesman, top of the boards, and he starts uh, Act 2 having successfully sold the man that we saw him selling to at the end of Act 1. And apparently that sale has put him over the edge. I don't know if it's a dollar amount or a percentage or what exactly has put him over the edge to now be able to, to win the Cadillac. Right. Yeah, there's there's apparently so also you need to make X amount of money in addition to beating everyone, and then you'll be able to get the Cadillac. And and yeah, he's kind of the 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 young, I'm using the air quotes now for those of you who can't see, he's the the young hotshot in the group. He's uh he's racking up sales and he's good at it too. One one of the, the, the again, the only real selling scene that we get in this play is with Roma and this guy called James Link. Well, and selling real estate. Right. That's true. <laughs> the men are that's always true. selling things to each other. <laughs> that's absolutely right. It just happens so, to be ideas rather than real estate for most of the play. <laughs> <laughs> yep, ideas and position and power. Yeah, um, yeah but th- th- while that is a good distinction, the one uh, maybe uh, working cell is uh, is Roma's cell, and and he's just like brilliantly obtuse um, by you know talking about other things. He really just gets this guy comfortable and off his footing, and gets him to buy this piece of land in in what is uh basically a monologue scene the it's it's him with long pieces of of lines that are just him talking about life and why it's important to you know take a shot sometimes and and then the the other guy James Link is just like responding with one word lines 
It's it's really a very odd sales pitch because yeah, you're right. The the pitch begins having nothing to do, really, at least at face value, with the real estate. In fact, at the very end of the scene is finally when Roma says, look at this map of real estate I brought with me. I think I might have something you're interested in. And that's mm-hmm. basically the end of the scene. There's a few Dane and Juan lines, but then the scene ends. The bulk of the scene as it is is not much about real estate. It seems to be almost like a bar side uh, drunk. You know, you can imagine like a really drunk person giving like a life philosophy, trying to, Mm -hmm. to articulate a life philosophy. That's sort of what it sounds like Roma's doing, but the philosophy is concerning in a lot of ways. And, <laughs> yep. it, it, you know, the, the, the men that we are introduced to are really problematic men. Yeah, absolutely. These guys have quite a few, like, character traits and problems and, and issues, but nevertheless, Roma comes off as a pretty... Uh, enigmatic guy in this scene. He doesn't he he doesn't sell the property. What he sells is himself kind of to Link because he makes Link want to impress him. He wants Link to Link wants to be like Roma. At, in the end, a little bit further down the road, when Link ends up coming back to the office and and not being able to pay for things, um his his one of his biggest apologies in it is he feels like he's disappointed Roma. In the end, so it's so it's this it's this Roma really knows how to be someone who someone wants to buy something from. I guess beyond making something buyable, he makes himself into some a person that people want to be around and want to make happy and want to buy something from. Right, and and the stuff that these guys are selling is expensive stuff. It's real yeah. estate, high dollar real estate. And so not only is Roma selling himself, which he does so effectively, I love that you brought up that Link is concerned that he's disappointed Roma, a stranger <laughs> he met in the restaurant. I mean, they are strangers yeah. but prior to the play. And mm-hmm. Link comes in worried he's disappointed Roma. But also Roma's selling a view of the world that would allow someone like Link and his family to invest their savings, their life protection into this chancy real estate scheme. This is an example of a little bit of what Roma says. This is before, again, way before he's ever brought up real estate. At this point, he's just talking to a stranger in a Chinese restaurant. And he says, and what is it that we're afraid of? Loss? What else? The bank closes. We get sick. My wife died on a plane. The stock market collapsed. The house burnt down. What of these happen? None of them. We worry anyway. What does this mean? I'm not secure. How can I be secure? Through amassing wealth beyond all measure? No. There's a right way we would say to deal with this. There's a one in a million chance that so-and-so will happen. F it. It won't happen to me. No, we know that's not the right way to think. We say the correct way to deal with this is there is a one in so-and-so chance this will happen. God protect me. I'm powerless. Let it not happen to me. But no to that, I say. There's something else. What is it? If it happens as it may, for that's not within our powers, I will deal with it. Just as I do today, what draws my concern today? I mean, it sounds like nonsense. Yeah, if you're if you're wondering what he's saying, you're absolutely in the right. You're not alone, (laughs) and it's only through this sort of careful paying attention to what he the the words and the ideas and the content that you start to go, holy 
crap, that's a scary life philosophy. <laughs> yep, yep. It's it's almost a pattern, right? Like it's it's almost, you know, what a magician does to distract you from what's actually happening. Um, he has this kind of rhythm and this is the challenge for the actor. I feel especially with Roma. Roma has this rhythm of his speech pattern that is really unique that uh, Al Pacino took a stab at. And while almost always, I think, doing excellent, had a couple still that were like, where, where are you going? I, I'm confused. But this pattern, this rhythm of Roma's speech is... Uh, is 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 has to be intoxicating right like it has to be it has to suck you in and draw you into the conversation so that when you have this thought of like wait a minute isn't this kind of a bad philosophy to live by he's already on to something else and you're still on the ride with him to somewhere else that's right. And as you mentioned earlier, this is the only scene in the play where someone is actually selling real estate, or at least the only pair that do. You can make the argument that Roma is still selling the real estate to Lincoln Act Two, I guess. Sure. Yeah, but it's the, but it's, the, it's the only pair of characters <laughs> that, that ever engage in that. But as I made the careful correction earlier, there's a lot more selling to be done. Oh, in fact, yeah. the first half of the play is salesmanship. It's three scenes of selling. In the first scene, Levine is trying to sell the idea that he should get be given better leads to Williamson. He does this failingly, heartbreakingly <laughs> poorly. Yeah, Just pretty cannot manage to convince Williamson of anything. Eventually mm -hmm. has to buy him off. In the second scene, Moss is selling to Arenal the idea of breaking into the office, stealing the leads, and, you know, basically giving one big middle finger to management and sneaking out the back door. And Moss has Moss does not very effectively sell the idea either. And what does Moss have to do at the end of his sales scene in order to win? Yeah, well, he has to just threaten him, basically. He just he threatens him by maneuvering him into a place where Aranau feels like he would be complicit in whatever happens and thus shouldn't talk about it. Right, he, he ends up having to strong-arm him, right? Which is the kind of salesmanship. Yep. <laughs> it's just not a very, uh, I don't know, highbrow one. It seems like a blunt instrument. Yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then you have Roma as the third option. Um so yeah, you've got these these three instances of different sales methods, and then you have a one long final act, basically, where you get to see all of these people thrown together into one room. Yeah, and and the final act is, as you say, set in this one room, and the room is the sales office, and it's been just torn apart. And it's very interesting to me to pick that as our one interaction with the sales office. Because while the Chinese restaurant is a perfectly fine place to set a scene, Mamet could have set all three of those scenes in the sales office, right? Levine and Williamson could be talking in Williamson's office just as easily as they could at a Chinese restaurant. Moss and Arana could be huddled together in one corner of the office while everybody's at lunch having this conversation or stepped into the hallway, Right, Roma could be selling across his desk to Link, having picked up a stranger on the street. I mean, all of that's possible. And I'm not saying at all that that's better, just that it's possible. Which means that Mamet's decision to only give us one view of the office, and the one view being, it's decimated. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It it certainly could have been that way. In fact, I think the movie does do that occasionally. There are scenes uh, from like the Williamson and Levine scene happens in the office. But I, I agree with you that it is, it is such a powerful choice to only see the office destroyed and see these five guys and a cop all spinning around in it, <laughs> trying to recover or cover up different parts of who they are in this space that they work in. Yeah, and in some ways, there there are some practical elements to decision-making, too, besides just, like, the technical side of only having to make one scene change or whatever. Uh, there's also the sense of, like, in the story, having all the phones be already ripped out of the desks and, and ha- having made the office in such a state of disarray that no work can be done saves you from any of the characters trying to do any work. Right. In fact, in order <laughs> to try to work, they have to leave. Mm-hmm. Which which allows you to build sort of exits into the scene in ways. So there's some of that too, but I think a lot of it lands on this, you know, this core theme of what the life of a salesman is. Mm-hmm. In some ways, th- this is an interestingly different take on the salesman and the life of the salesman than Arthur Miller takes. And in some ways, it's a really similar view of the heart the the heartlessness of the industry the loneliness the way that these guys are broken down by what they're being asked to do and the money they're being asked to make for someone else over and over and when we finally get to their place of business this place that they all have different opinions of throughout the first act what we find is that it's chaos <laughs> it's right. destruction made physical in an office form mhm yeah, absolutely. And and you can kind of see then what that does to everyone. They're all they're all tied to this event, um, whether they are guilty or not. But because of what happens, A, the phones are gone, as we said. B, the leads are stolen, cash is gone. There's a police officer in there interviewing people, asking them like to to prove that they didn't steal anything, basically, take their statements. And and we see that this this domino effect of of this destruction this this physical manifestation of the destruction of their office how it manifests into their lives as well into their selves as they all have to interact with it because each of them are dependent on this office for something and and for instance Roma comes in after having uh, sold link the night before and all the contracts are gone he, he freaks out because he's been pushing for the Cadillac for so long. And suddenly they've, the contracts have all been stolen, he thinks. And, and he's not, he, he realizes, oh my gosh, I have to go out and get people to sign again all of my contracts that weren't turned in in time. I have to get Link to sign again. I maybe have to get checks again from all these people. I can't call anyone. So that's, that's like, those sorts of beats all like hit these characters and they just end up blowing up at each other. Right. And of course, if you've been paying any attention, you know that in Act 1, we see a pair of characters talk about breaking into the office, tearing things apart, and stealing the leads. And Act 2 begins with the office having been torn apart, everything's broken, and the leads have been stolen. Right. So uh, there, there's some progression to that, right? This doesn't just come out of the blue. We, what? We they believe stole from them? <laughs> in Act 2 that Moss and Arana have, have, have ripped off the office together. 
And so, as Moss and Aaron are separately questioned, uh, there's there's a great moment. Um, I forget who the scene partner for Aaron is, but Aaron's talking about how he's about to get called in for his interview about it, and he says, "You know, I'm I always get nervous when I talk to cops." And the scene partner says, "Good. You know who doesn't get nervous? Thieves. <laughs> yep, <laughs> they're used to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep." So what, so what, so what are the, some of the complicating actions of this scene? Because it's not just a straight line through. It's not just, oh, I guess we got to figure out uh, who stole the stuff and then we can get back to work. A bunch of different things begin to crash land into this scene. Right, um, yeah. It, it, the, the scenes that took place in Act 1 have a conclusion of sorts in Act 2, and the robbery just takes a little bit more prominent one than some of the other ones. But, for example, one of them is that Levine comes in at the end of uh, his scene with Williamson in Act 1. Again, he offered to buy Williamson off, say, I'll give you so much money for uh, one of the premium leads or two of the premium leads, and Williamson agrees, but uh, Levine doesn't actually have the money on it. So Williamson uh, recounts the deal, and uh, Levine says, fine, just give me one of the bad leads. I at least need to try something. And he disappears. At that's the end of their scene. So act two begins with Levine, or, or it doesn't begin. It, later on in the, in the act, Levine comes in and says, I sold it. I got this huge sale. I sold Bruce and Harriet Norberg or something like that on eight units in Mountain View. It's incredible. It's an $82,000 sale. Hallelujah. I'm back. I made this huge sale. And th- the as the scene plays out, he tries to describe how the sale happened happened how he managed to get it some of the other characters start to say things like the only thing that's amazing about your sale is who you sold it to oh i tried to sell them on such and such um and the norbergs become known at least the audience becomes aware that people know who the norbergs are even if we don't know why and levine's sale then kind of crash lands at the end in conclusion with the with the with the climactic discovery of the play which we'll talk about in a minute what else jackson yeah, so I already talked a little bit about uh, Roma. He's freaking out because basically the the <laughs> his pit crew failed him. Um, I think is his view of things. He believes that Williamson is there to j- just help them sell things, and he came to the office and he couldn't even protect the office. Seemed <laughs> like he couldn't hold down the ship. So in the middle of that, Lenk, who he talked to the previous night comes into the office and he's distraught because he has had a conversation with his wife and. They they have come to the agreement that slash she has told him that it is a terrible idea to do this and you need to get our check back. So Link comes back to try to recant his purchase of these houses and stop the check from going through. And Roma has to try to talk him down from that if he wants to keep the sale. He does that by enlisting the help of Levine, who just jumps onto this merry fiction that they go on. (laughs) (laughs) That Roma is selling property to him, Levine, who uh, is also a representative from American Express and has a lot of money. And (laughs) just trying, they're trying to like get Roma out of there so that Link can't recant what he wants that he wants his money back and what ends up happening is Roma has to like focus on Link and really like 
try to get him to walk out with him and have a further conversation. In the middle of all this, people are going into the office and getting talked to by the police. The police keeps uh, the police. Uh, the police officer's name is Balin. Balin comes out, keeps calling people. He calls Levine in the middle of the con and is like <laughs> looking at Levine and telling him to come into the office as Levine is playing someone of someone else's name. This American Express representative. And uh, so so that is all kind of swirling around in that room. And the reason why this is even possible for the money to be back and the reason why it's even possible for Roma to potentially avoid this problem is that apparently Link and his wife have called the attorney general who has told them what Roma I'm sure already knows, which is that they only have three days to get their money back before the deal becomes permanent because they signed a contract. Uh, but they have three days, apparently, to void the contract and get their money back. So the idea is get Roma out of there, and if they, then they can't get it done in three days, and they're stuck with it. There's an uh, just outstandingly wonderful piece of dialogue around that, where uh, Link says, you know, I have three days, and Roma says, yeah, but that's three business days. And Link <laughs> says, yeah, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And Roma says, no, 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 you don't count Saturday. You have till Monday. <laughs> And Link says, I, what, I'm not counting I'm not Saturday. Counting what are Saturday. you, I'm not, no, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And they go back and forth on this again and again. Roma yep. using this just dis- deceiving, <laughs> like hilarious childish. tactic that he just doesn't like. He's pretending like he just doesn't understand. Right. Over and over, Roma goes, no, 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 you don't count Saturday. Saturday <laughs> doesn't count. Saturday's not a business day. It doesn't count. Yep. And over and over, Link goes, I'm not counting Saturday. <laughs> Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I have three days. Yep. <laughs> Roma goes, we can talk on Monday. Saturday doesn't count. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So there's so there's that one swirling around. Uh, what else we got? We got we got um, Moss and Aranow are both there, and they are both being interviewed by the police. And uh, as as you mentioned before, Aranow is kind of kind of freaking out about it throughout the scene. Right, yeah, he's real nervous to talk to the police. As an audience, we believe we know why and we understand. Uh, Moss and Aaron have some kind of... Uh, layered conversation where Moss will, you know, right as Aaron not come out, Moss will say things like, hey, are you all right in there? Everything go? How'd I go in there? And there there feels like there's some weight to all that. Uh, uh, what? All, how does this all come to a head, Jackson? All this crazy stuff really ultimately comes down at one time, right? In an incredible feat of writing, Mamet has brought together these three to five different plot lines into one outstanding moment. Ooh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so the the kind of the big moment that happens throughout this scene. I'm going to say poor Williamson, um, but Williamson has his problems. Don't feel too much pity for him. But poor Williamson is just getting beaten up by these four other guys. <laughs> like these are all pretty experienced salespeople. And you get the feeling that Williamson is not, uh, didn't earn 
his position. Um, he didn't earn it from selling, selling in the streets. They called it, uh, they, they frequently say you'd only learn this if you were out in the streets. And, uh, and he, he, he knows someone clearly and got this job. So he's trying to hold down this or job. At and least all... that's what the guys say. It's, it's all, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> it, it, we don't really have a really reliable interpretation of what Williamson's role is in the office or how right. he got that job. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. We know he, he has control of the leads. We know he locks the place up. We know he turns in the contracts. So he has some power, um, but he does not have the respect of the group. Um, this this is further crystallized when he tries to add to the con that Roma and Levine are playing. He kind of walks into the room. He gets the cops. This the uh, Balin is trying to get Roma into the room where he's interviewing people as Roma is interview or is trying to talk to Link and. Uh, and Williamson comes out and like stops Balin and says, I can't believe it. I can't believe the cops. And, and, uh, and he tries to add into the conversation uh, with Link. Oh, don't worry. Your contract went through just fine. And even if it didn't, we're insured. It's going to be okay. Your, your, your purchase is fine, which is, of course, exactly what Link does not want to hear. Right, in this because moment. the crucial, a crucial part of Roma's tactic to basically prolong this conversation until it's too late, until the contract Three, the three days on the contract has has expired. A crucial lie of this tactic is that the check was not cashed until Wednesday. And so if the check was not cashed until Wednesday, i.e. today, then the, the three business days don't come up until Monday. And there's nothing to worry about because the check wasn't cashed anyway. We just won't cash it. No big deal. That's the crucial part of the lie. But as you say, Williamson comes out and he hears that Link is, you know, he only all he knows, he hasn't heard the conversation. All he knows is that Link is there concerned about something. And uh, and he knows that earlier Roma was really concerned about whether or not Link's contract had actually gone through. And so, uh, you know, you say poor Williamson, and this might be an instance where I kind of agree that his his confusion is an earnest one. <laughs> he he really does think he's helping by by taking what might be a natural interpretation of this of the scene, which is, oh, Link is here because he's concerned his contract got stolen. Roma's called Link maybe to come back in and re-sign the contracts, or Link is concerned that his check was stolen by these thieves. So Williamson comes out and says, "Don't worry, your check wasn't stolen. I cashed it yesterday on Tuesday." <laughs> yep. Which just like sends Link out of the room. He this is this is the moment where he like apologizes to Roma. Um, I I don't know that I'm willing to give Williamson as much of a pass from that. <laughs> um, certainly Roma does not. Um, Roma has a line, and I'm, I'm not going to find it at the moment. But something. First of all, he just lays into him for two long vitriolic paragraphs. <laughs> against Williamson and uh, his like final line is you don't step into something until you know what the shot is. And right. That's and that is definitely Williamson's mistake. <laughs> yeah. He definitely <laughs> leapt in there way too quickly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless, that all occurs, right? This, this kind of bombshell goes off. Roma gets pulled into the office. He, he says, I hope you stole it, Williamson, and maybe I'll figure out a way to help him arrest you if you stole all this stuff and goes into the office. Yeah. And, and as you say, the rant is just, it is heart 
it's hard to listen to. Yeah. The kinds of things he says about him is so many cuss words, so many terrible names called at Williamson. Williamson is accused of having no spine of, you know, sleeping his way to his position. Yeah. Just being an absolute muck slime ball, the worst person Rome has ever met, blah, blah, blah. Which puts Williamson, as you can imagine, in a foul mood. (laughs) Roma has gone then into to do his questioning finally, and Levine is left. And Levine still feels like, I made my sale, man. I'm (laughs) back. I didn't even need your help, Williamson. Ha, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have hopped in, and you shouldn't have lied about it. Mm -hmm. And then Williamson says, how did you know I lied about it? I always take the contracts in every night. How did you know that last night I didn't? And what happens is an incredible plot twist. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's it's one of those plot twists that works so stinking well because you don't even know there's a twist coming. Right. right? You just assume, as you're experiencing Act 2, Aronaw did it. Aronaw ripped off the office. They talked about it last act. Mm-hmm. We know that Moss had basically pinioned Aronaw with blackmail to more or less agree to do it at the end of their scene in Act 1. Aronaw's been nervous the whole act. He and Moss have had some sort of shady side conversations. Apparently, he did it. We just, mm-hmm. it's just fine. We, we think there's some dramatic irony to watching the characters try to figure out who did it, knowing who did it. Little do we know, it was we- not Aronaw. Yeah. It was Levine. Yep. <laughs> which is also brought about again this is like a, a watching a sales pitch we get to see williamson have a little bit more in this moment because of the way he questions levine there are plenty of ways for levine to back his way out of this this is tenuous evidence at best the 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 descriptiveness or the description of actually what Levine says is you don't want to you shouldn't have made something up like that if you don't know what you're actually doing and and Williamson begins, like says, how do you know I made it up? I always take the contracts in. Last night, for the first time in forever, I was playing with my kid and did not come back in to take the contracts in. How did you know? And from that point on, Levine just like tailspins. <laughs> His like conscience comes out and, and Williamson just like goes after him and goes after him and go almost lawyer like, I guess, more than salesman and just picks him apart and just gets him to confess pretty That's much. That's right. Yeah. At the end of basically Levine's confession, this is what I did, why I did it. Moss asked me to do it. He did. Yeah. He, made, he gave me this just much money. Everything. He Here's where I sold the leads to. At the end of all that. <laughs> Uh, he, uh, uh, Williamson says, I almost said Kevin Spacey because I'm smashing the movie. <laughs> Williamson says, you got a big mouth, Levine. And the yeah. audience can't help but go, yeah. You really you do. You got a big mouth, Levine. Jeez. <laughs> Why would you tell him all that? He doesn't have anything but like, like you said, tenuous evidence at best. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> It just kind of continues. Levine throughout this play is, uh, I think, a pathetic character. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And the, and the salesmen are all pathetic in one way or the other, right? And that's kind of, it, it's... It's it's you know of course it's part of the theme of the of of what's going on is this picture of the cutthroat soulless world of real estate. Levine is the most obviously pathetic, but the other men have their ways too, right? Aronaw is so easily duped 
into mm-hmm. going along with this plot in Act One. Basically, what Moss says is, "Well, you heard me talk about it, so you're an accessory now." It's like, right? No, he's not. <laughs> there are other ways. <laughs> but he's so easily duped, partially potentially, because of the the deep hatred that they're starting to harbor for their bosses for for doing this to them. Roma seems like the man, but falls apart. Once mm-hmm. things don't go his way. Yeah. And and even though other people seem to have some anger against him, uh, he is not happy with the bosses either. Like it's, there's, yeah, it's, it's every, every one of these characters has this like, this undercurrent of we're, we're in something that we no longer control anymore it's almost it's almost addictive in that way you get the feeling like they're still swimming they're still trying to they're still working in this stream they're still figuring out how to do it but they're out of control they can't they can't hold on anymore to anything and then there are these moments uh, of i don't know where you can see into them a little bit to this 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 them that exists outside all of all this chaos of their job i love uh, one of the ending moments is one of the characters maybe arena uh, he just says i hate this job yeah it's like mm-hmm. in once you get past this layer of these characters that is the job you discover these really wonderful moments like roma for all the crap he takes for being the best salesman is a delightfully wonderful comrade you know he's really the only one in the whole office who is willing to sit and listen to levine tell him about his big sale mm-hmm. and this is roma roma makes big sales all the time listening to levine tell you know they call him war stories is like roma's like i make this sale every other day right, this is not right. that big a deal but he's the one who's willing to sit and listen and encourage levine and say over and over oh the machine the machine is back Mm-hmm. He does the same thing to Arano before he goes into the the uh, the interview with the with Balin, the police officer. He's like listening to him. He's trying to encourage him a little bit. He's just saying you're just in a bad streak because Arano also has not made has made barely any sales. He even stands up. Not only does Roma listen to uh, Levine's story, he stands up for Levine in Moss's face, who comes out and just like berates Levine, and he 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 ends up going head to head with. Moss for a while too. So I, I, I do agree, I guess, that they're that underneath all of this kind of uh basically a bundle of nerves that these guys are, you get occasionally to see some of their merits as well. Yeah, and and that's what makes what they're clearly experiencing at the hands of this really cutthroat business. That's what makes it all the more heartbreaking. Is you know, you get to see things like the pride that Levine has in the work that he used to be able to do and and how crushed he is that he's not able to succeed in that way anymore. And that's such a human experience. And it makes the fact that he's, you know, going through this being cast aside now that he's an older, less successful salesman, all the more heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. So, so what are the final, what are the final, like, uh, beats for Levine as we as we kind of see him out there. We we've talked all the way up to where he's 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 given up everything. <laughs> he, he's told he's told Williamson what happened. He starts to beg more. Like he 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 eventually Williamson says, "No, I'm just gonna turn you in." You know what? You have a big mouth. I don't like you. I'm just gonna turn you in. <laughs> 
Yeah, and so Williamson goes into the detectives and Levine exchanges some words with some salesmen that come in and out. Roma, I think, tries to convince them maybe that they should go have a conversation about like going into business together or something. Right, right. And Levine basically has to stay and Levine gets dragged in to the interrogation room by the police officers. Mm-hmm. Then there's a weird ending. <laughs> Isn't that ending weird? Yeah, it, like, it, it's it it, it it like I don't know the, the the ending image of Levine getting carried into the interrogation room is so powerful, right? And so heartbreaking to watch that then well, I don't know what follows. I agree, it's so so odd. Yeah, it's this it's this odd interaction between Roma and Williamson. Uh, eventually, Aranel is there as well, but. Uh, yeah, that it's this kind of interaction. You just, I think maybe what it does is it shows that despite what has just happened, Roma and Levine had this moment of camaraderie before Roma realized that Levine was getting hauled in basically to be arrested for robbing the place. And, and so there's this moment of camaraderie between them. He goes out and then maybe 40 seconds later, Roma says, okay, I'm taking half of all of Levine's stuff now. Um, now that he's out, he's just like, Already, he's pitching to Williamson again. He's he's kind of back in gear. He he wants he he wants more. There's more to take, and so he he moves in to take it. That's right. And and Aronal returns too, who we thought has done it this whole time, and we learn didn't actually end up be yeah, the yeah. one who who did it. He comes in. I love it. He he did they find the guy that did it yet? <laughs> and suddenly we're like, oh, he's not lying. He legitimately doesn't know. Right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Aronal. So, Jackson, there's seven characters, uh, with the exception of maybe Balin. They all have a journey. Uh, Balin's journey, I guess, is just catching the the thief. I don't know. That that might be kind of an ignorant thing to say. If I really spent some time with Balin, I'm sure, sure, sure. I'd learn about his inner Absolutely. <laughs> six of the seven men definitely carry along this journey. Whose story is this play? Yeah. Um... That's a really good question. I think the uh, the three that pop to mind the most are Shelley, Williamson, and uh, Roma, um, because I think they go on the 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 biggest journey. I think eventually I would talk myself out of Roma, though Roma has a lot of weight in this play. Um, we don't we don't actually start the play with him. We meet him comparatively late, and uh, while he is this kind of big force throughout the final scene, especially, I don't think we actually go on too long of a journey with him. He's, he's kind of in the same place at the end of the play as he is at the start. Yeah. And really he's gained a little bit more power over Williamson, but you're right. Other than that, he lost this particular sale, but we imagine he'll go out to make more. And he, he, at least at this point, doesn't have any more knowledge, at least where the play ends than he had really where the, than where the play began Eventually, I suppose they'll tell people that it was Levine. But at that point, all he knows is that Levine went back in to talk to the police. Right. Yep. I think it depends on how you want to tell the story. Um, Because I think either Williamson or Levine could be seen as the... protagonist is almost too close or too far away from what they are but as the the center around which the play rotates yeah Um, i i agree with that with the exception that i i I think maybe that 
what you're describing is really as a result of them being paired characters. Uh, it, it's very hard to separate the two individual journeys out. They're so closely related as, uh, you know, protagonist, antagonist, or, uh, you know, person on a journey, obstacle in the face of the journey. Um, you know, if, if at gunpoint I was forced to say, it seems like Levine is the one who starts somewhere, carries through the middle of the play a path to be on, a path to ruin, and we see that ruin carried through at the end at the hands of Williamson, who was therefore at the very beginning. You know, of course, the play begins with the two of them, and the climactic moment is all about the two of them. Mm-hmm. So... So let's let's roll with that for a little bit. What sort of uh, structure is this play then? If 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 uh, if Levine is the uh, the the main protagonist that we go on, which I I think I do agree with you that he is certainly the one that we go on the journey with. Um, he's got a lot of time. We watch from his eyes a lot. He's in the room where most of this all happens. Um, so that, but what what is the what what are we in for then? What is this play doing structure wise to supplement his being the main storyline? Right. I mean, some of the interesting structural features of what happens is that we don't see Levine for the middle part of the play. He's there at the beginning. He comes in. I don't know if I took a guess. Maybe a third, uh, two thirds of the way through. I mean, again, and is there basically for the last third of the play. But in the middle, he's not a part of those scenes. He's not part of the scene of Moss and Arana. He's not part of the scene of Roma and Link. And he only comes in after a little bit of into Act Two. But here's what's so interesting about the way Mamet has written the show, because he actually is in those scenes, especially the scene with Moss and Arana. We don't know it at the time, but that scene is the scene of what Link, ex- or not, sorry, what Levine experiences later on. Only at the end of the play, when we know that Moss, I guess after Aronoff fails him, goes to Levine and strong arms him into doing the job and gives him that same sales pitch that he gave Aronoff, do we understand that the scene about Moss and Aronoff really is about Levine? Yeah. It's, that, it's sort of a delayed yeah. context, right? Only once we get the final understanding do we understand the place that that Moss and Arana scene had in the journey of Levine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. It's, 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 there's like this, this subtle realization that you have that like Moss doesn't come off real well in this play, but uh, that, that, oh, of course he would have this conversation then with with Levine and if and maybe maybe had them simultaneously and just saw who produced <laughs> produced results at the end. Um, so so yeah, that's a good point too. Do you think that we would wander our way into some sort of tragic structure or not? Well, it's definitely tragic in the sad sense of the word. Sure, in the in <laughs> watching the <laughs> watching the collapse of Levine. Whether he is like a tragic hero and experiences his own demise as a result of the tragic flaw or not, I'm not so sure about that. To me, Levine is, and and I don't know, some folks will be mad at me probably, if I, but he's kind of a Willie Loman, not just because they're salesmen, but because of his age and his failing success in the salesman business, he's watching everything collapse around him. 
And even in the same way that in the middle of the play, Willie Loman has this sort of new, renewed hope that he's got a new plan to go into business and his sons have got something brand new figured out and and and, and uh, Loman's going to go and get a job here in town and that's going to make everything good. In the same kind of way, in the middle of the play, Levine comes in and says, I'm back, baby. I just made an $82,000 sale. I did it. And then we see that all of the, that both Levine's sale and Willie Loman's expectations are all built on air, and they all collapse, and the balloon slowly sags to the ground. Right, right. Yeah, and and on air that they've been kind of creating themselves and breathing. Like, they, yeah, yeah, the, the, the falsity of Levine coming out as the, of, as the thief there, not only, I mean, there is the sucker punch that he sold the people who, uh, had no chance of of actually paying what they th- said they were going to pay. Right. Oh, um, yeah. I'm not sure we've said that yet either. So in the middle of Williamson accusing Levine and and getting the confession out of him, Levine says, oh, keep me around. I'll give you 50% of all my sales. And Williamson says, you don't have any sales. And, and Levine says, I just made an $82,000 sale. And basically what Williamson said is, is those people are crazy. They love yeah. talking to salesmen and making ba- and writing bad checks. We have mm. memos on them. We were warned not to talk to them. And that he knew four months ago when the lead came in. Right. So that, that was the lead that he gave to Levine. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that that sale itself bursts like so much hot air. Mm-hmm. We only have a little bit of time left, and I, I feel like we'd be re- remiss if we didn't talk about just the way this play is written. Um, the, 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 the writing of Mammoth in general is... Uh, quick, dense, um, and, and just full of conversationalism, I feel like. And I don't think that this play is any exception. There's a lot of, a lot of lines that kind of overlap, that feed off of each other. The first three scenes, I imagine, are done within the first 20-ish minutes of the, of the play. Like, they're fast-paced, one-line scenes that bounce back and forth. And, uh, and, and that, I think, that, that aesthetic, it carries on throughout this play. Right, yeah, absolutely. And when we talked about American Buffalo, I'm sure I did something very similar. But here's a little taste of how Mammoth Speak uh, works in Glengarry Glen Ross. This is the scene between Moss and Arana. Arana says, so all this, um, you didn't actually you didn't actually go talk to Graf. Moss says, not actually, no. You didn't? No, not actually. Did you? What did I say? What did you say? Yes, I said not actually. The F you care, George. We're just talking. We are? Yes. Because, because, you know, it's a crime. That's right. It's a crime. It's a crime. It's also very safe. You're actually talking about this? That's right. <laughs> yep. You end up taking a 360 by the end of, the, by the end of uh, just like eight lines. Um, but but the, I think that what that does is it creates a couple of, it creates a couple different opportunities. You can do this play in a very kind of like I said earlier, this kind of patter, this fast moving dialogue that goes throughout. But I think what makes it powerful is where you choose to pause as well, um, because those are the moments that you kind of allow your allow your audience to catch up to you. Certainly as, as you are reading it, you need to take a second and go, what, what, like that paragraph, that, those, that series of lines that Jacob just read. I think I read that three times the first time I read it (laughs) just to understand what Moss was saying by the end. Oh yeah. I mean that series of lines I read, what a journey. (laughs) 
I mean, it's, you know, it's just a back and forth. They say one sentence at most at a time, and that's at most, oftentimes half a sentence or less. It's a little hard to tell when I just read the line straight. I know where the characters break, but none of those lines are very long at all. But what an incredible journey of just (laughs) 10 lines or 12 lines or however many. And it's, 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 it works so well because Mamet's particular style of writing infuses language that's so mundane that's uh that that does not the language itself carry a lot of meaning but the context that he builds around it makes every word carry weight mm-hmm. and every word uh affirm character throughout this like th- this play manages to be as we've said as jacob said first and then we've continued on a play about selling through and through with only one scene where someone sells some real estate, like throughout the play, this, this rhythm, this, this speech pattern confirms that these guys are selling all the time. They're maybe not closing all the time, but they are selling all of the time to each other, to other people, to their bosses. And, and that I think has to carry, it it wouldn't work if the language of the play itself, if the writing of the play itself didn't carry it. Right, yeah, they, you know, they all talk like salesmen. Yeah. And, I, you know, that's not especially high praise. Good job, Mammon. You wrote <laughs> characters that sound like they should sound. <laughs> but it's really incredible. The way they talk to each other about anything is at, is at once both so foreign, so odd, so much like, why are you talking like that? And at the same time, so enticing. Right. That earlier, and I, I didn't note it at the time because we just kept going on by it, but I almost said this. Did you notice, Jackson, that earlier we were talking about Williamson's intervention in Link's and Roma's conversation as if Williamson was in the wrong? We were literally <laughs> rooting against Link. We were rooting that he would get ripped off. Yeah. It didn't occur to me until the end of that conversation. I was like, why are we talking about Williamson like he did something wrong? Link didn't get ripped off as a result of this. The good guy won, I think. Right. But because of the way the play is built and the how intriguing and how enticing the writing of these men is, you end up on their side as they do things that in the in the aftermath you go, what did I just root for? <laughs> right. And that's a sales pitch, isn't it? I mean, that's what these guys do for a living, Absolutely. at least according to Mammoth. I'm not saying that's what salespeople do, but Mammoth's imagining of this sales force is that they talk people into a frenzy so that they basically sign the paper and only afterwards, once their three days has expired and the contract is set, do they finally go... What did I just do? Wait a minute. I have eight houses in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a play of antiheroes that like win you over, even though some of most of what they do is pretty reprehensible. Oh, they're reprehensible people. (laughs) Just awful people. Yeah, but for some reason you root for him. Yeah, it's it's kind of the it, of course it's kind of the same as American Buffalo. Mammoth's good at this, but he writes these people that it's like I would not want to hang out with you. Right, but right. I guess I kind of would. I think that's 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 interesting. Uh, you know these these people. It it reminds me of Wolf of Wall Street too. If any of you have seen that movie, I feel like we're, we've been kind of talking about the progression of this of sales plays throughout the century now. Um, and uh, and and I think it's in that line somewhere. I wonder what our next you know sales disillusionment 
play or movie or script or story is. You know, it's it's changed substantially. We've had all these plays that have, you know, kind of ruined our, not ruined, rightly brought up the fact that... <laughs> There's there's a lie that is at the base of salesmanship and 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 sometimes a curse that comes with it as well. So it's it's interesting to see the progression of of that story. It's still such a part of American culture, um, and it's still still there are obviously still uh, the the salespeople and the salesman lifestyle is still very prevalent, but it is evolving, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what the next disillusionment play is. I'm excited about it, and I'm sure that we will be talking about it on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Because we love stuff like that. Glaring Glary Glenn Ross is an electric play. It's like Lord of the Flies, but set in a <laughs> sales office. I mean, it's <laughs> this is a play about power, about jockeying for positions, about selling yourself and your goals, and nobody but Mammoth can do it like Mamet does it, which I know doesn't mean anything as a sentence, but I think you all know what I mean. Right, right, right. And, th- right. and in that way, I'm being kind of like Mamet right now. <laughs> that Just, sentence didn't mean anything, but, but you, you know agreed. what I mean. <laughs> yes, if if you agreed or if you did not agree with uh, anything in the play, we would love to keep talking with you about it, though we are at the end of our time. Um if you can find us on any of the social medias or any of the prominent ones, we got Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The uh, username at all of those are at NoScript Podcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on any of those areas, and we would love to keep talking with you about this play, whether you were in it or saw it or just like the Alec Baldwin monologue. We'd love to keep talking to you about it. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, please tell people about it. Share about it on your social media. Just share an episode on your social media. Talk to your friends. Talk to your family. If you like scripts, that's why you're here. You probably know people that like scripts. That's how friendships work. So please (laughs) tell your friends. Let's keep growing the No Script community. We're amazed by the growth that we've seen so far. You can find our podcast on Podbean where it's hosted on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Every Monday when new episodes come out, the link gets posted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So check us out on all those sites and we'll talk to you some more. But until we are in your earbuds and headphones again, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We'll see you next time. See ya. See ya.